Last weekend, experts from around the world gathered here in Seoul for a public forum at the Asan Institute for Policy Studies to discuss Korea and other examples of successful transitional justice. I spoke with an organizer of the event to find out about its history and what he hoped attendees would learn from the experience. I'm Scott Stevens from Transitional Justice Working Group. I'm the Communications and Administrative Director. And this conference is the 2015 Asia Human Rights Forum on Regional Cooperation for Transitional Justice in Asia and Human Rights in North Korea. What we want to do is try and learn lessons from transitional justice experiences in other countries in the region. But this conference is really the culmination of a series of workshops that we've been running since the beginning of the year. Um, this is sort of the culmination, the uh, capstone of those conferences and workshops. To start off, we're going to have opening remarks from Chang Rok So, a member of the UN Human Rights Council Advisory Committee, President of Human Asia, and Chair of the SSK Human Rights Forum. So please welcome Chang Rok So. This year, the UN has opened office in Seoul to deal with human rights situations in North Korea. Marjuki Tarizomat, a special rapporteur of UN human rights conditions, said that it is urgent to talk about North Korea's human rights abuses and to hold those perpetrators accountable and bring transitional justice to North Korea is a must. So this is time we have to pay more attention to North Korea's situation and we have to reflect upon our negligence or ignorance about North Korea's situation and we have to seek ways to start international and regional cooperation for North Korea. Please welcome Professor Yang Hee Lee, UN Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in Myanmar. History has shown that if past wrongdoings are not properly addressed, the next generation will bear the burdens of the one previous. To avoid passing down resentment, hatred, and guilt by association and division in this society, our current generation must confront the past, although it may be uncomfortable past, with a strong resolve to restore the lives of those who have been affected the most. We must seek ways to offer reparations that enable the rehabilitation of victims' families so that the children of those afflicted can take a full and equal part in the society to come. North Korea poses a unique challenge and a unique opportunity for transitional justice. While it remains a closed society, with currently few mechanisms to address the abuses identified by the COI, there is a unique opportunity in that the challenges and common pitfalls experienced by other transitional justice projects in Asia can be avoided, which will lay the grounds for bringing about a new era of human rights in North Korea. Thank you very much. I'm Hanjun Kim, and I'm going to the, be a moderator for the first session. And then I'm a professor at the Korea University, and I teach international relations and political science. And then the first speaker is Ms. Sinha Paulson, and then she is currently serving as the representative of the United Nations Office of the High Commissioner for the Human Rights in Seoul. Thank you very much. Um, Transitional justice processes seek to restore and protect the dignity of individuals as bearers of fundamental human rights. 
And secondly, they aim to build trust between individuals and the state, including through the respect for the rule of law, which is essential for the protection of human rights in any state. To achieve this, transitional justice mechanisms encompass a number of processes. These include things like prosecution, truth-telling, reparations, institutional reform, and national consultations. So concretely, what have we learned from these processes? Well, we have developed some guiding principles that, um, while broad and while recognizing the unique character of all settings, seem to be important throughout different parts of the world. Perhaps most fundamentally, we believe that the work must be guided by international law and its provision. This approach aims to restore dignity and to build credible institutions that enjoy public trust and act fairly. I hope very much that this seminar will provide us with an opportunity to explore more in depth how these underlying principles may relate to the context on the Korean Peninsula. And I look forward to our discussions. Our uh, next speaker is uh, Professor Anya Mir, and then uh, she is an associate professor at the Netherlands Institute of Human Rights. She teaches human rights and transitional justice and then democratization in international relations. First of all, again, thank you for the invitation. I'm glad to be back in South Korea and also be back at this institute. I had the pleasure to be here last year also to give a talk on comparative research on transitional justice around the world. And South Korea, Japan uh, are countries in the region that we consider. And what we look at is uh, really how transitional justice measures have actually impacted successful transitions or not. To say, why should future generations actually face painful past of their country. Not only we can say it's an obligation or it's a, it's a moral imperative to do so, I would add to this and I would say if you don't learn to face this painful past, your own history, it's always nice to point the finger at others, but it's much more painful to face your own history. I know this from own experience in my country, um, but it also it adds to the, let's say, the resilience of institutions in the country. Because if you have, if you're, if you, the next generation after war, atrocities, dictatorships, whatever, if you learn to face this painful past of your own, it's part of your identity, and it helps to also face future problems and crisis. And we see this now in many, many countries who have refused to come to terms with their own past, that often that society and their democratic institutions or institutions as such are less resilient to face crisis, contemporary crisis or future crisis. The mechanisms or the pathways to that successful transition are always the same. But of course we have cultural contexts and historical contexts, no doubt. But we can be sometimes obsessed with some sort of what we call, oh, this case is unique, this is special. I've worked uh, many years uh, as an advisor in Colombia for the transitional justice process, and uh, there the people always say, well, you can't compare the Colombian case with any other case. When I worked in Uganda, oh, you can't compare Uganda with any other case. Uh, and coming from Germany, I say, oh, you can't compare Germany with any other case. Well, you know, it sounds familiar to me everywhere where I go. I've also heard it in this country. And therefore, I take one step back and I say, well, just one step back. And then you see the comparison. Then you see the similarities. Okay, now we are going to accept, uh, receive some questions and comments.
Thank you very much. My name is Choi Yong-shik, and I am a graduate student studying international law. Ms. Poulsen, it's very uh, nice to see now uh, OCHR presence here at home. I'm wondering how much is your office involved in the discourse or in the policy regarding the reunification, because in Korea, um, transitional justice and accountability, the discourses and the discussions are very much related to how we achieve, how we deal with the reunification. Yeah, so, so the office of the, of the High Commissioner for Human Rights in Seoul um, basically was established by uh, Human Rights Council Resolution 2525, which gives us actually a, a pretty broad and a, a threefold mandate one of which, of course, is to follow up on, on COI and to monitor grave violations of human rights in, in the DPRK. Now, on the question of reunification, I mean, this is largely a political issue which, which needs to be solved nationally and, and, and between the, the two Koreas that now exist. What I would say our office's role could be in that is, is to, to think about, um, you know, how human rights may be incorporated in any approaches and how to, to best go through such a process if it indeed were to happen. I'm Leif Eric Easley, a professor at Iwa Women's University and a research fellow here at the Asan Institute. Professor Amir, I understood that you said that efforts undertaken by democracies and that tend to be more successful are more forward-looking and those that uh, tend to be undertaken by non-democracies and are, and are less uh, successful in, in the longer term, they tend to be more backward-looking. So if you could say a little bit more about that, that would be quite uh, instructive to me. Thank you. It's an observation that I made, and now to prove it is, is much more difficult about the backward and forward-looking. I want to summarize it uh, in that way, and of course Russia is always my favorite example because everybody has a picture in mind. In particular, memorials, commemoration days, but also reparations and trials are basically used to constantly remind society. But even if you had commissions of inquiry, it was about getting away with those in charge of the past. But there were very little connections to future, let's say, political practices. And that is what we see in more democratic countries where they link a trial or truth commissions always with recommendations for future generations. We have seen, uh, for instance, in Austria, where these reparations or compensations for World War II victims go to the second and third generations with, certain, uh, with a certain mandate, for instance, for education, for inclusion, et cetera, et cetera, to facilitate that generation into society because societies don't change overnight. It takes 10 years, 20 years until they change the mentality. And reparations or compensations, depending on what you call them, uh, can help facilitate for the future generations. You wouldn't find that in Russia. For KoreaFM.net, I'm Chance Dorland.